Welcome back to Pop and Schlock. Thank you for tuning in on KPFT HD3. This week, we are going to have one fun show because we're going to sit down and we are going to talk about the importance of tone, aesthetics, and theme in science fiction, which is a discussion that I have been dying to have for at least the last few weeks. I even have glass bottles that I can shatter in anger. Yeah, I know. We're probably going to get thrown out of the studio tonight. Anyway, um, this... This discussion has been brewing. This is a discussion that has been uh, gestating and percolating in the back of our minds for just a, just a little bit. Um, and I wonder... Ever since the show started, I think. Yeah, ever since the, so the show started, because we have been gravitating towards at least a little bit watching and indulging in science fiction media over the last couple of weeks. And that isn't going to stop anytime soon. It's also mostly what's been coming out. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's... The January genre dump. I feel like that is accurate. Um, but I feel like whenever we were sitting around last week talking about the Cloverfield Paradox, that it really got under our skin. And it really started lodging little things in the back of our brain that we needed to... We just needed to talk about this. Because I... And I feel like I should preface this. I've been spending a lot of the time, a lot of my time on the web lately, and I've been seeing so much negativity. I mean, overall, there's just a lot of negativity and a lot of misinformation and a lot of people who just get the wrong idea about, well, genre fiction in general, but specifically as it relates to science fiction and speculative fiction. Um, now, I am of the mind that science fiction can be anything. And if you disagree with me on that, you're listening to the wrong show. Because how I feel is that science fiction is, and I've had this debate with many of my friends and many of my colleagues, I believe that science fiction is probably the single most versatile genre that somebody can work in. As a writer, I firmly believe that somewhere deep in the bowels of my soul. I believe that science fiction is probably the single most versatile genre that you can work See, in. See, I think it's I think it's on par with fantasy and horror. I think those three all kind of go together. Is the and I would I would argue that even within with within the realms of fantasy and horror, there are some things that are absolutes. Whereas I feel that science fiction has fewer absolutes. And that comes down to the ideas of tone, it comes down to the ideas of theme, it comes down to the ideas of aesthetics. Science fiction is so versatile in a way that other genres aren't, and perhaps that speaks to maybe a complacency on the part of other genre writers and what I've been exposed to, but my experience having dealt with and read and viewed and absorbed quite a bit of science fiction over the course of my years, I feel like science fiction is one of those genres that is heartily 
it's 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 so versatile it's so ripe for different types of themes and aesthetics and tones and all of that wonderful stuff that makes up the genre itself and at the same time it is probably the most misunderstood genre as well and i feel like it's because people get this idea in their head of what science fiction is and they self-defined the point that things that otherwise would be considered masterpieces of the genre they dismiss outright because it doesn't fit into their personal box right it also like we've pointed out the the catalyst for this episode was when we were talking about black mirror versus dimension 404 and the number of reviews that referred to dimension 404 which is deliberately very much meant to be an intentional campy almost like an are you afraid of the dark aesthetic for science fiction it, it wears its influences on its sleeve uh, there is an episode where Patton Oswald wears a, uh, a they live t-shirt in an episode that's meant to be a throwback to they live and I loved that episode oh, it was excellent it was, such a good it was excellent but there are so many people that refer to it as uh, a ripoff of Black Mirror which is which most is, popular which is ridiculous because black all black mirror is is 21st century twilight zone exactly let's not, let's not act like black mirror is reinventing the wheel i in preparation for this this episode i went and i binged black mirror i watched a lot of black mirror so and I, w I was doing so while my wife was away. I was completely, I was just, I was just sitting there watching and absorbing Black Mirror. And it's enough to make you want to throw your face into a plate glass window at some point. Whereas Dimension 404 is joyous. Yeah, it revels Dimension in Four its... Dimension 404 feels like... How, how it's it's so hard to describe what that show feels like to me because it's, it's, it's not a parody. In no way is it, it a parody. You know what it reminds me of? It... It reminds me of what the Munsters and the Adams Family are to horror. Exactly. It takes joy in it. It's, it's yeah. But, that's but a... what I'm saying is, is that there people keep making comparisons like, well, it's just a, it's just a poor man's Black Mirror. It just wants to rip off Black Mirror. When literally the only thing that they have in common is the structure. Yeah, the only thing that they have in common is the fact that they're anthology shows. Yes, it's and, that they, it's and just, that they dabble in the science fiction arena. And that's literally all they have in common. They are not the same aesthetically. They don't have the same goals. They don't have the same tone. They don't have the same ideas. And I, I've, you know, I've argued and I've ranted and raved about authorial intent so much throughout the last couple of years, and it, I don't feel like I can repeat myself any further. But it's important to engage with the media that you're watching on the terms that the creators have set for that media. So last week we talked about Cloverfield Paradox, which in and of itself is not, it's not a great film. It has its flaws, but it's not, it is not the dreck that people are making it out to be. It is perfectly valid sci-fi. It is only meant to be operating in a very, a very, very uh, concise arena. It's meant to be enjoyed for its B-movie sort of schlocky tendencies. And I feel like people didn't get that. They didn't get the memo. I think that people have been so conditioned that in, it was like, this is the 21st century. If we're going to use science fiction, it has to be an allegory and it has to be dark and blah, blah, blah. I watched all four seasons of Black Mirror in one weekend. Like, that's the way that people think nowadays. And I'm not trying to slight Black Mirror because I think I that, love Black because Mirror. I love, there are certain episodes of Black Mirror that I thought were really, really well done. San Junipero is a classic. And USS Callister, Metal head the black museum 
all of those, I think, are sci-fi, contemporary sci-fi classics. But that doesn't mean that something like Dimension 404 isn't also great sci-fi. And I feel like, honestly, I feel like Dimension 404 could have been exactly what it is now. It could have been exactly what it is now, the same sort of loving sort of uh, tribute to that sort of sci-fi. But the thing that kind of distracted me from engaging with it on a level that maybe I should have is that the aesthetic choices that they chose for the way that they shot it, I feel detracted from me taking it seriously as anything like professional media. It felt like, to me, it felt like a, um, it felt like a YouTube series. Not necessarily something that you would see on a major streaming service like Hulu or Netflix. And what I really would have liked... Well, you do see it on a major streaming service. Yes, it's I, a Hulu I, I, original. Yes, I did. But what I'm saying is that it's not commensurate with the other type of original content that you normally see from those platforms. And what I would have loved to have seen is the same tone, the same tone taking to, taken towards the genre. I would have loved to have seen that same exact tone, that same exact tongue-in-cheek sort of stylistic leaning with a more subtle, nuanced, aesthetic palette. Because I feel like that... It, I, it had a carnival color palette. Yes, it, it did. It was brightly colored. It was very brightly colored, and I feel like the, the color palette and the way it was shot, it felt very flat. It wasn't very dynamic. And I feel like part of it is it was them trying to uh, meld the aesthetic of what we're seeing presented on screen with the way the special effects were presented. I felt like it melded that way and maybe if they had shot it in a more traditional um, modern style it wouldn't have meshed quite as well. But I feel like maybe that's part of the reason why people are dismissing it as n not true sci-fi is because it doesn't look like sci-fi. Does that make sense or am I completely off? What you're here? saying is it doesn't look like an, I an iPad. Yes, it, that's exactly it doesn't look like an It doesn't look like an iPad. Where are my lens flares? Where are my lens flares? <laughs> Everything has to be sleek and white. Everything's or chrome else, in the future. Yeah, or else it's not sci-fi. Because and, cyberpunk doesn't exist. I know, and it's funny It's funny that we talk about aesthetics because it's, it's one of those things that... Uh, it's, there's a healthy debate in film communities and literature communities about the idea of sci-fi aesthetic and what it should be and what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to look and feel, etc. and where those influences come from. Which is weird because the genre is literally about exploring different possibilities. Exactly. Sci-fi is a sandbox that everyone can play in and you don't have to adhere to any sort of idea. And it's, it's funny how I feel like modern sci-fi is so derivative of maybe two or three major events in cinematic history. Like, the amount that we can trace the sci-fi aesthetic to either uh, the original Alien or Blade Runner, uh, because apparently sci-fi is just whatever Ridley Scott said it is, the, the fact that we are still trying to incorporate that same aesthetic here 20, 30, 40 years later, and that seems to be like the generally accepted standard bearer for what sci-fi looks like. Well, I, think I, I wouldn't that that dismiss puts... the, uh, the fact that a lot of steampunk is still pretty popular as well, so they pull all, even further back into the H.G. Wells and Jules Verne canon. Yeah, and I, I mean, even going back, if you want to if you want to talk about early 20th century influences on science fiction, you can't discount something like uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Mm -hmm. That also still major, major influence on sci-fi. I'm just... Well, and not to mention a major influence on Tim Burton. That, that too. And it's, it's funny. This is me, maybe me showing my ignorance or maybe I'm just blanking out here, but I don't think Tim Burton... Has Tim Burton ever done a traditional, what you would consider sci-fi film? Because 
Uh, I mean, Planet of the Apes. But okay. I don't think he oh. necessarily channeled his. Uh... Oh, he had Mars Attacks. Oh yeah, Mars, Mars Attacks. Oh, that would be a gr- that would be a great episode to talk about. I've completely forgot about Mars mm-hmm. Attacks. I don't think I've seen that movie in like fifteen years. Yeah, we need. We need but to see, Mars Attacks also didn't really incorporate a lot of that German expressionism that he's known for either. No, it didn't. It seemed to draw more inspiration from the like B movie pictures of the fifties and sixties. Your stuff, like you know, something from you know something from beyond the reach of space or what have you. It was that wore the influences on its sleeve pretty pretty. Uh, I would say vividly. See, um, and it's appreciated as a cult movie. It, it, it. Whereas, like I said, nowadays anything that really embraces that cult movie. View, the the only exception that I can think of off the top of my head would be Ash versus the Living Dead. But that's because it's based on a previous property that was made at a time when embracing that aesthetic and embracing that dynamic was more accepted. And one of the things that I kind of struggle to deal with, and I it's I look I look at sci-fi. Like I said, I think it's a very versatile sandbox. I think it's one of those genres that is so ripe for, you know let's do something in a different direction. Let's do something that's different than what's come before. And yet there seems to be a tendency by people working in the mainstream sci-fi sandbox to cherry pick and try to almost homogenize what sci-fi is supposed to be. And one of the things that I really love about sci-fi as a genre, and it's one that uh, I... I'm currently writing in the sci-fi wheelhouse right now because that's kind of where my mind is at. But one of the things that I love about it is that you can make sci-fi whatever you want it to be as a creator. And it's one of those things that that's what drives discussion about the genre. And it's one of the things that keeps it so healthy and active. Like one of the quintessential arguments among sci-fi fandoms is, you know, which do you prefer, Star Trek or Star Wars? You know, those are two wildly differing types of film or media, and yet they both have contributed to the overall landscape of what sci-fi is. And also at the same time, you can completely enjoy both on their own. You can enjoy one on its own merits and still like the other, or you can be turned off by elements of the other. It's it's also really good uh, with hybrid. Because I just mentioned Ash versus the Evil Dead. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing is... I mean, it started off as horror, then it kind of did some horror sci-fi stuff. Yeah, I mean... Time travel well, and everything, so... Well, Sam, Sam Raimi is one of those creators who just kind of throws everything at the wall and sees what sticks, mm-hmm. so, which is something that I admire about his work. Even whenever he even whenever he's uh, he swings and misses, I, it's always interesting to me. Um, and it's one of the things where I wouldn't consider... I wouldn't even consider anything of that series to be especially um, sci-fi. It's more soft sci-fi. It's 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 very soft sci-fi. I think it falls more into the idea of uh, fantasy than sci-fi. It's it's because it's still of the, time travel. Because the, because there's well the time travel is at least in my mind magical because it's so it skews more to fantasy for me. And I think that's what's so great about sci-fi is we could sit here and debate whether or not that's sci-fi all night long. But it's it's one of those things where it's like I think it's kind of a hybrid. It's, but that's it's, that's a debate we can have. Yeah, it? and I feel like that's kind of one of the things that annoys me nowadays about just the way that we approach media is that we are so quick to if something doesn't fit into a box then it isn't that thing and I feel like there needs to be a more open embracing of the idea of the hybrid the idea that elements from different things can creep into another genre and it doesn't discount it from being the thing that it sets out to be Um, I like 
somebody oh, look at Alien. Alien is a horror movie in space. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's definitely sci it's still sci-fi because it's there there are science fiction elements. You've got the idea of, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and things of that nature, but it's still very much a horror movie. Does that discount it from being a sci-fi movie? No. Same thing with uh the sequel. Aliens is by and large a military actioner. It's more a military thriller than it is anything else, and yet at the same time it has elements of horror and it has elements of sci-fi. Terminator? Terminator. The Terminator movies? The, I would consider the first Terminator to be almost hard sci-fi, because it has all of those elements that make classic sci-fi, and yet at the same time it doesn't seem to be really remembered as such. Right. And it, there, there's something that that's that techno-futuristic, uh, like, almost... It borders on the edge of cyberpunk at certain areas, and I, I think that that's part of just because, you know, that, that 80s influence that somehow permeates most <laughs> cyberpunk nowadays. Um, and, and I love the original Terminator so much. Like, as far as... I'm one of those people who will go to bat for the original Terminator as being the best of the series. Um, I know a lot of people will call me crazy because... I still prefer Judgment Day, but I like them both. Yeah. Judge, Judgment Day is just... We were talking last week a little bit before the show about the idea of the game changer mm -hmm. in terms of cinematic landscape. And Terminator 2 was a game changer in most respects, in pretty much every respect. And this, the same way that... Um, later on you have stuff like The Matrix was also another huge game changer. And I think that that is also another through line you can say about good sci-fi. Good sci-fi can be a game changer. Good sci-fi can also carry its influences on its sleeve. Like, yep. look at The Matrix. The Matrix is the... one of those movies that I, I feel like its legacy has been somewhat um, diminished by the association with its sequels. But if you look at The Matrix as a whole, as a quintessential sci-fi classic that film is astounding even even now almost oh god is it 20 years later but even though it's serious sci-fi the wachowskis still very proudly show off their influences oh yeah they loved kung fu movies they loved anime they loved cyberpunk and all of that gets fed into it and it's and, and it's funny because we look at something like uh, we look at something like Ghost in the Shell last year. Uh, a lot of people considered that were you know there were so many talking points as to why that movie failed. And of course there are many of them. The whitewashing controversy, not the least of them. But the thing is, we had Ghost in the Shell whenever the Wachowskis made The Matrix, the, because that influence was so was so direct and so visceral and so in the text of that film that 15 years later you can't make a direct adaptation of the original Ghost in the Shell and not feel like it was a Johnny-come-lately moment. Um, so it's one of those things that... I, I'm one of those people who really... I love sci-fi on, on such a fundamental level, and I will argue that most of the game-changing, landscape-altering films of cinematic development have mostly been sci-fi. Going back to Metropolis, coming up through Alien and Blade Runner and The Matrix, the, because and I don't know what it is, I think part of it comes from the fact that sci-fi pushes boundaries of what the expectations are and of of what we can do creatively with storytelling. And whenever we come up with these new ideas, whenever we try to put them on film, I think sci-fi drives technological invention in ways that other films don't. And I think that just comes along with the genre. Look at how flip cell phones deliberately look like the communicators from Star Trek. By design. By design. like. 
the the fact is most of most of scientific invention and most of scientific progress is driven by the minds of nerds who were inspired by sci-fi in their youth you will not find many people who watched star trek or watched star wars or watched even stuff like battlestar galactica space 1999 lost in space things like that in their youth that didn't go on to get into stem fields and use that as the basis for what interested them in scientific fields well look at uh nichelle nichols mlk telling her personally that she needed to stay on star trek to inspire more black girls uh, and boys but mostly girls to get into the STEM fields. Yeah, and it's it's one of those it's one of those things where I feel like maybe it's become cliche to talk about how influential the idea of sci-fi is on the general populace because the the general the general movie going and entertainment absorbing public I don't feel like they give the same level of critical analysis and and engagement towards uh, what they're watching that people like us movie nerds really do and I feel like but they still have to understand on a subconscious level the difference between g good narrative storytelling in the sci-fi arena and stuff that doesn't work because I also feel again like we tend to confuse structure with what it's aiming for and I, I feel like it's we do critique a disservice by trying to compare all of it like I, I don't think there's much of a comparison between a cyberpunk movie and a really hard sci-fi space opera but no. i don't feel like and i feel like there's a little too much criticism that that tries to compare the two and contrast the two and say that one is better than the other because xyz when i i feel like personal preference is not an objective analysis i i know and it's 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 one of those things where I, i've talked to people and because I run in movie nerd circles, sometimes I run up against people who just, you butt heads with them and there is no coming to a consensus. And I have fought tooth and nail with people who have argued with me with a determination normally reserved for debates on a congressional floor that they believe that Star Wars is not science fiction. I have had that argument. You do... Star you're, Wars. You're is making the same face that I. I wish you could see this. I almost want to Facebook Live it. But they have argued tooth and nail that Star Wars does not fit the genre, the genre restraints for sci-fi, and that instead it is a sword and sorcery film. It is that. It's both of those things. It is, but it it's can, a hybrid. It can be two things. It's it's a Kurosawa movie in space. I know with and, lasers. And it's like, one of it's one of those things. I, I I love Star Wars. Like I'm a Star Wars guy. Like I, I'm sorry, Christina, but Star Trek is not my preferred space thing. I'm I'm always going to be a Star Wars. See, guy. and I'm more of a cyberpunk person. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I, and the thing is, I can objectively see the things that have been added to our cultural subconscious by different types of sci-fi. Just because I love Star Wars doesn't mean I don't love Star Trek and that I don't love Battlestar Galactica. And just because I love Dimension 404 doesn't mean that I don't also like Black Mirror. And So what, what I'm wondering is why do you feel like people feel the need to dismiss Dimension 404 on the basis of it's not as good as Black Mirror? It's the it same reason why we can't have... you Nowadays you can't just be a comic book fan, you're either a Marvel fan or you're a DC fan. Or you're one of those people who's like, I don't read Marvel DC, I only read indie. Because people want to claim ownership of something. So when they say 
I like sci-fi, what they mean is I have defined sci-fi to be XYZ. Anything that is outside of that does not qualify as sci-fi because I am the arbiter of what I believe sci-fi to be. I am I own this box. I am I am the keeper of this box. Anything outside of it is it is not valid. There is no validity to it. So and, do you feel like the the criticism and the backlash against Dimension 404 on the grounds that it's not Black Mirror and it doesn't accomplish the same thing as Black Mirror. Do you feel, and, it, and it's pretty obvious where I stand because of how I'm framing this question. I feel like it's unfair. Well, here's, here's how I feel. All sci-fi is valid. Uh, if they are attempting to tell a sci-fi story, then it's science fiction. Um, that doesn't mean that there's, I'm not saying that uh, sci-fi can't be bad. I'm not. I'm not saying that science fiction as a genre means that it's a a buffer from criticism. Well, that's literally why Mystery Science Theater three thousand exists. I know that's exactly why Mystery Science Theater three thousand exists. But let's uh, let's look let's look at this in the lens of modern sci-fi because uh, Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks are are they're wonderful, but they don't they don't hit all the targets they should. Um, Last year we had Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Not very good. Not a not a good movie. I'm I'm sorry. Now c contrast that with The Fifth Element. Both sci-fi films by the same creator. One of them is a bona fide cult classic, if not an actual classic. I think by this point it's it's ascended to classic status. It's it's because everybody knows everybody knows the fifth element. I don't think many people have not seen the fifth element. Probably just my wife, who also has not seen anything that wasn't produced by Disney in the last twenty five years. Hello, baby wife. Um so it's one of those things where I really, really liked uh, I really, really liked Fifth Element. It's like one of my—it's one of my favorite. Like, I'll throw it in for the heck of it because it's a fun movie, and I—I I, I like the aesthetic, and I like the. <laughs> I'm turning off my phone so I don't get any more uh, text, med text messages from my wife, because um, she's gonna make me giggle on air. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, Fifth Element is a great is a great movie. I will pop it in anytime just because it's fun to have in the background. Valerian, while it had some of the same aesthetic flair and it had some of the same creativity. It just wasn't as cohesive. And that's okay. That's okay. And there are people who love that movie. There are mo uh, I believe that the, the source material was, was different than, than Fifth, uh, Fifth Element, from Fifth what Element I understand, was, was an organic story. that Fifth that Element was original. Lupuson. Valerian was an adaptation was, of a French graphic novel. It was an adaptation of a very long running. So from what I understand, they, they took a very small story from that and it adapted it versus kind of bringing it all in together. Yeah. So and if we want to go and if we want to go for So adaptation's a, a little harder than Well, if we want to talk about story if we want to talk about modern sci-fi that is tonally consistent with what I consider to be sci-fi and yet for some reason was just a major misfire, uh, allow me to point you in the direction of Jupiter ascending. Because we did an episode on that back in the olden times, and there are still parts of that movie that I consider to be comedy gold. Unintentional comedy gold, but it is not. It is not a film that I would recommend to anybody who doesn't have a strong, strong tolerance for utter buffoonery. Because I still think that Eddie Redmayne's Oscar should be taken away from him I think, for that movie. I think that he should have won the Oscar for that movie. Mm -mm. Because... Mm -mm. The art of whisper shouting is a lost art that only Eddie Redmayne and his frog face can deliver. That is, and it's funny because Jupiter Ascending 
I have, there's like a soft spot in my heart for that film because it's so goofy and it's so stupid and it wears, and like everything the Wachowskis have ever done, it wears its influences on its sleeve. I, res I respect its ambition while also not thinking it a very good movie. Yeah, I, I think I, And I like the Wachowskis. I like the... I do. I appreciate what... I even, like the Wachowskis, but I also, I, I pity the Wachowskis because they will continue to make media for the rest of their lives and they will never do anything as good as Speed Racer ever again. Speed Racer is the best thing that has ever been created. So I, I actually have not seen the Wachowski movie. I know. I know. What? I know. What? I, well, remember, remember, we've talked about this. The, oh, my God. How? Look, Jake, the only movie I've ever seen is Babe, remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. I only watch Babe over and over and over again, and I just read Wikipedia summaries of all the movies we talk about. We really need to do Speed Racer for this show. I would like to. I, I'm so it it is the it is the most pure movie I have ever seen, and I am not, this is not hyperbole. This is not me playing the character that I normally put on for this show. This is me being one hundred percent honest. I legitimately and without reservation endorse Speed Racer as one of the greatest films ever made. I loved the cartoon as a kid, and so I, I still have the song memorized. I uh, drove my parents nuts singing it. It's funny because I think somewhere in a box in a storage unit somewhere is the VHS copy I have of the the old Speed Racer with Racer X. Like, I have that VHS copy that I think I bought from a Blockbuster closeout. See, I'm legitimately surprised that I haven't seen it because I think Matthew Fox's Racer X is one of the greatest casting decisions of all time. Oh, it was he was so perfect. That was the... I'm, I'm not... I'm actually kind of a Matthew Fox apologist because whenever he shows, whenever he chooses interesting roles, he always surprises me. But I shouldn't be because every time he shows up in a well-chosen role, he knocks it out of the park. It's like I shouldn't be surprised, but I am. It's one of those weird acting tricks that I need to like dive deep into and kind of figure things out. Um, I lost my train of thought. I'm going to try to put this thing back on the rails. If you're just joining us, thank you for listening to Pop and Schlock on KBFD HD3. We are talking about science fiction as a genre and why I believe it is the most versatile and uh, expansive and all-encompassing genre to work in that um, among any type of genre out there. I, I will put it up against anything. And Meredith argued that, you know, it's like, well, what about fantasy and horror? Well, I say poo-poo to that. Uh, Sci-fi is definitely the most, the most apt for what you can explore. I feel like in, in the realm of, in the realm of horror, there are tropes that are always going to be tried and true that have to be adhered to. And it's, if this is... But does it Yes. Does it though? Like, yes. I, there's I an, watched... and, there's, and there is an excellent article written by Stephen King that I wish I had access to that I could read to you and it would prove my point. But maybe I'll bring that up next so, time. As much as I am loath to bring up a Casey Affleck movie on here, <sighs> I know, I know, my opinion is the same. Uh, a Ghost Story, I feel, was a very excellent postmodern horror story. And I, I still have not watched it because Casey Affleck. He's awful. But it's a good movie. Yeah, I, I've heard wonderful things, but I haven't watched it. And My opposition to Casey Affleck is not his acting. My opposition to Casey Affleck comes from multiple arenas, um, not just his acting. You guys know what I'm talking about. Um, but when I look at sci-fi, 
I I watched a lot of Black Mirror in one sitting, and it's 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 funny because I. I watched it. I started watching it while my wife was out of the house because I knew that I could sit down and my attention would be focused. And she came. She came home about halfway through uh, the White Bear episode, and she was asking me, "Is like, why did you just start watching horror movies?" Which I feel like that's a good indication of how versatile the idea of sci-fi is because nobody tries to paint Black Mirror as anything other than sci-fi but the elements of it come so much from the ideas uh, come so much from the tropes and places of other genres. Well, uh, San Junipero and Hang the DJ are rom-coms. Yeah. Well, they're not rom-coms, but they have a lot of rom-com-y tropes to them. Yeah. And then there's something like if you look at the, the very first episode aside from certain technological elements of it, it was basically a political thriller. And then you have... Waldo. Yeah. The Waldo episode, which yeah. was also a political thriller. Yeah, and and yet... Just a very absurdist one. Just a very absurdist one. And I feel like no, and nobody is rushing out of their way to say, oh, Black Mirror is not sci-fi. I think Metalhead was more of a horror story. Yeah. Metalhead was one of my favorites. Definitely. It's... I feel like... I try and I try and I try to have some sort of overriding idea of what a genre is. But sci-fi, the reason that I love it so much is because I can't define it. Um, if you were to look at the current project that I'm writing right now, a lot of people probably would not call it sci-fi. At least not based off of the chapters that have been written so far. They would probably they would probably liken it more to uh, dystopian horror or something along those lines. But I consider it to be sci-fi just because it's not set in outer space and there are no lasers doesn't mean it's not sci-fi. Well, most cyberpunk's not set in outer space. Yeah, I know. And it's still sci-fi. And yes, cyberpunk is sci-fi. I don't know how many times I've had to explain that to people. What do, what do the people think it is? They think it's they think it's its own thing. It's like oh, it doesn't have to be sci-fi to be cyberpunk. And I'm like, okay, why are we even having this discussion? What do they think the cyber is? I really don't know. It's like steampunk is still sci-fi. Atom punk is still sci-fi. I think that there's a couple of stone punk now. If there if there's stone punk, I haven't read it. I really. I was reading about it at some point. I just don't remember the, the I'm, titles. I'm gonna have to look that up because if we can just all agree that the time is ripe for a Flintstones reboot, there was the Mark Russell Flintstones reboot over at DC. Yeah, but Mark Russell is mostly a, a social satirist. Yeah. So I, I don't. I wouldn't call that stone punk so much as uh, social commentary. That just. But yeah. That just happened to be in a Stone Age setting. Yeah. So. It's, well, they, they do bring in the Great Gazoo, so there are some sci-fi elements in you're, there. You're right. Let's also the pretend that the Great Gazoo doesn't exist. The Flintstones, ex the Flintstones is definitely sci-fi because of the Great Gazoo. That's the thesis statement of this particular episode. Um, we just got, we just had a very roundabout way of getting to it. Yeah, definitely. If uh, if this was a paper written by one of my students, we would have failed by burying the thesis this deep in the rest of the babbling. But. And it's it's funny because you're segueing from the Flintstones. What about the Jetsons? The Jetsons was sci-fi, and now it's retro futurism. 
Yeah, all, all I can think of because they they are re, they rebooted uh, the Jetsons over at DC as well. Yeah, I know they, uh, they rebooted all the Hanna yeah. Barbera stuff. But like all I can think of right now is that one episode of Harvey Birdman where the uh, Jetsons show up in his office and say they're from the far off year of two thousand two, and <laughs> the calendar on his desk said two thousand four. That joke gets funnier each successive year that I watch that episode. Um, and I love the Jetsons though. The Jetsons, it's it's funny because. A lot of people discount the Jetsons as, like, whenever you have a discussion about sci-fi, animation kind of gets tossed to the wayside. But there are, I, I would argue that there are many great animated sci-fi classics that kind of get swept aside. The Jetsons, I mean, it the world building on display in something like the Jetsons is indicative of how much you can really do with a sci-fi setting. Same thing with... Uh, I feel like Akira definitely gets its due, though. Akira def Akira is one of those landscape changers that I talked about, and you you don't hear about it a lot from like the general populace. It's not one of those all time like oh game changer that you, like whenever people you ask people like what is one of the what do you consider to be the most important like game changing films of the last whatever years? They'll say stuff like The Matrix, or sometimes you'll hear Inception, something like that. But you, but your everyday Joe Blow on the street isn't going to say. I kind of think of Akira to movies as what the InCal is to comics, whereas the only people that really have read the InCal are going to be really hardcore comic book fans, and yet it is one of the most influential comics ever written. Kira, I think, would be similar to that in that regard, is that it is heavily influential. I also don't feel like The Matrix could have happened without Akira. No, definitely. And yet again, you're probably going to have to be more of a movie buff and to have known about it or to read about it. So, I mean, it's also kind of like the, the Dune movie that Alejandro Jodorowsky wanted to make. That's one of the most influential movies that never actually happened. And we're apparent. Dune is due for a remake right now. Um, the director behind Arrival and Blade Runner twenty forty nine is directing the remake of Dune, and he described it as being, uh, "This is Star Wars for adults," is the way that he described it. So I'm kind of interested to see his take on it's it. It's also kind of a condescending thing to say about Star Wars. Yeah, it definitely. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't because if you like, if you talk to I, I, there's a fairly substantial amount of media having come out in the wake of Last Jedi where Mark Hamill has said, come on, guys, this is ostensibly it's still for kids. You know, this it's it's a grand space opera. And it it's if you look back at the original Star Wars, that was definitely an adolescence kind of sci-fi. Right, but it's you're still able to look at it through a critical adult <laughs> lens and explore its themes. I feel like anything that can't be looked at through a critical lens is not effectively utilizing its own existence. Well, point because, conceded, but again, because, though, it... Because like I said, I can, I can do a critical analysis of the Jetsons. We, you know, I can do a critical analysis of the of the '80s version of the Transformers cartoons. They all have, they all operate within the bounds of their genre to present a theme or some sort of so idea. I feel like maybe I, I phrase this improperly, uh, but look at, for example, everything that the most recent Star Wars movie has to say about being dismissive of extremely feminine authority figures. Yeah, that's not a children's theme. No, to uh, look at. Well, I feel like w once you got to Empire Strikes Back, after after the initial Star Wars film, Star Wars did become a 
true sci-fi series in that it was trying to utilize a science fiction setting to tell human themes. And that's one of the things that I really, really love about sci-fi is that ultimately it can be populated entirely by robots and androids and it's still about telling human stories and manipulating the idea of human drama. And An overlooked movie for that would be uh, AI Artificial Intelligence. AI is one of those movies that it's 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 legacy is so it's it's gotten it's it's so tied up in the idea of being in that weird time of like it's this I'm trying to I'm trying to put no I'm I'm thinking about another movie never mind um AI is one of those things where I don't understand why it's so overlooked because I feel like it was critically kind of maligned when it came out people think of it as a lesser Spielberg movie but I think that God, the ending is so wrenching. And I feel like I feel like sci-fi gets a bad rap for being depressing because most, and I feel like I feel like Black Mirror kind of latched onto this and just choked it until there was no life in it. But then that's why we love Dimension Four Hundred Four is because it's the opposite of that. It's it's the opposite of that. Like, but they still, but even Dimension Four Hundred Four and. Uh, Black Mirror, both of them embrace the idea of, it's like, oh, okay, there's a bleak ending here. Like, if you look at the, the Patton Oswalt episode of Dimension 404, the ending of that felt like that same sort of bleak ah, crap, ending that you get with something like uh, Army of Darkness. But I feel or... like that was one of the only ones that really had the, the sadder endings. There was also the one with uh, the time travel. Yeah. The time travel one where they create the, the children's cartoon to get a woman into the STEM field so she can create time travel was brilliant yeah and it did have a happy ending she saved the world and invented time travel at the same time and i'm wondering if maybe that doesn't have to do something with the backlash against the show in that it doesn't fit that you know how like i was saying sci-fi fans tend to say if it doesn't do this it's not sci-fi well maybe the sci-fi fans who are just so convinced that there's no such thing as a happy ending in sci-fi that they just dismiss dimension four out for even the ending of the Patton Oswald episode where he just kind of like, Oh, well I'm going to be absorbed into this hive mind. It was still funny. Yeah. It's, it was still, it, it was, I mean, it was black humor. Yeah. But it was still funny. Whereas you're not going to get a ton of funny in black mirror, but I still, again, I still love it. San Junipero, I think is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it's, and it's the outlier in the series mm-hmm. too. So is USS Callister, which also had a very happy ending. Which I still haven't seen that one. I'm not going to spoil it. I didn't it get again. to that one. I'm going to watch it eventually. But if you look at, I mean, the very first episode of Black Mirror was so absurd and so filled with black humor that I, like, I know it's supposed meant to be like disturbing and edgy, but I was laughing so hard the whole were... way through. I mean, I think it was supposed to be funny. I don't know because it didn't feel like it was supposed to be. It felt like they, they were really going for the, oh, this is like, this is depraved and it's, uh, look, I... look at what we've come to and they're edgy. And I'm just sitting there laughing like a maniac. I laughed like a maniac during the Waldo episode too. Well, the Waldo episode I think was more pointedly funny. And I, I mean, just the fact that it was framed around the idea of like the, a comedian being the main character, I think that that kind of pushed it in that direction. But, I don't know. I still, I still thought that the, the original episode, which it's uh, an FCC violation for us to really discuss what happens in it, so we're going to just say the first episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, the first, the first episode of Black Mirror was so. Uh, it felt like a. 
How can I put this? I, I don't. It felt like something that I would have written in a notebook in high school that I hid from my parents. Yes, thank you. It feels like something that a like closeted creative type would have written in high school, thinking that they were like pushing the boundaries of sci-fi. I still have a soft spot in my heart for that because, again, it's kind of the stuff that I wrote in private, and I was like, I probably shouldn't be showing this to people because they'll think I'm disturbed. And I understand, like, I understand why, why that, I understand why the episode works, and I have my own qualms with it. And I was almost, I was almost turned off the series entirely by that because I had, I had avoided Black Mirror for so long because people were going around claiming it as being this like new classic of sci-fi, and I'm like, you know what? I I want to give it some time for the hype to die down, and then I'll sit down and I'll watch it. But I, in the first episode, I'm like, oh, this is so cliche and rote, and I don't really, I, it's not grabbing me. I don't see what people see in it. But then the second episode just grabbed me, and I loved it. It was the aesthetic of it, the writing of it, the almost stripped down minimalist qualities of the script. God, I loved it. The second episode was what drew me in, and then I turned around on the entire series whenever uh, Peggy Carter sent away for a robot version of General Hux. And I'm like, okay, I'm down for this. Because if someone had just told me that, I'd be like, oh, okay, that's all you had to say. Because I le legitimately uh, I enjoy seeing really talented actors play around with interesting concepts. And I feel like the first, the first episode of Black Mirror, um, the only actor that I was familiar with was the gentleman who played the uh, played the prime minister, because I remember him. I recognized him from the James Bond films. Like I recognized him from that. I'm like, oh, so he finally moved up the bureaucratic chain. <laughs> um, uh, I bet he's regretting that career choice. Um, but then as it went along, I'm looking at the interesting choices made by these particular actors and I'm thinking you know what this is it may not be the groundbreaking sci-fi that everyone is kind of pushing it as but as an actor's showcase and as a showcase for what good sci-fi can be it really is a strong show um I don't consider it to be the best thing since sliced bread like a lot of people seem to but I can also I'll, I'll go to bat for it and saying you know I'm really glad that something like this exists nowadays. I am going to go to bat for San Junipero with something groundbreaking. Yeah, for a multitude of reasons. That was, I would argue that that is probably my favorite. It has my favorite cinematography of any of the segments of Black Mirror. I think uh, it's my favorite. It's followed closely by episode two. I would also say USS Callister, maybe not necessarily. Again, haven't it, seen it. I know, I know. So I'm not going to spoil it for you. But what I will say about USS Callister is that maybe it's not necessarily groundbreaking, but it's still scathing in using a genre that is often populated by people who like to use said genre to beat up on others against itself. Uh, I also really like, I think that the, uh, the, the Black Museum episode, also extremely underrated. And uh, in terms of its, I mean, and again, it's, it's social commentary is extremely heavy handed, but also extremely necessary. Uh, it also has uh, Letitia Wright, who is our Shuri in Black Panther next week. Man, I really can't wait to see Black Panther. I've 
I'm not going to be able to see it this weekend. I have to see it probably um, over on Monday or Tuesday of next week because my weekend is so booked. But um, I, I imagine it's going to be hard to find a not sold out showing of that film anytime soon. It's going to be what's really going to be funny is um, tying it into this episode. Um, just the way that I, I'm. I'm a big fan of Black Panther as a character in Marvel. Like, uh, I've been reading Black Panther off and on for as long as I've been reading comics. And one of the things that I really love is the focus on the technological development of Wakanda as a country. So it'll be interesting to me to see how um, Ryan Coogler incorporates the sci-fi elements of Wakanda into that film. Because... I feel like, and next week we're going to have a whole episode about Black Panther with running commentary from people who have a lot of interest and um, actual expertise in the area of like Afrofuturism and sci-fi and things like that. Well, to put it bluntly, people who have a lot more reason to talk about this than we do. Yeah, exactly. And for me, seeing something like that, I want to see... I feel like that's another... We talk about groundbreaking film, and I feel like that one really does have the chance to be utterly groundbreaking it's, in more than one way. It's the first mainstream Afrofuturist movie. Yeah, I know. And I feel like that's... I feel like some people are going to gloss that over, and I feel like... I, I, I'm already seeing the backlash developing against that film, and it's making me sick. Um, so we'll I would we'll, I would we'll, also suggest reading Afrofuturism by Yatasha Womack. Excellent, excellent, excellent critical overview of what the uh, is a subgenre of science fiction. Right. Uh, what the? No, I mean I think I think to also even call it a subgenre is is extremely limiting because it embraces so much. But it's excellent book. I highly recommend. Highly recommend it. Yeah, and it's I. I feel like maybe we get hung up on, you know, is does this film break the mold? Does it do things that nobody else has ever done? Who cares? Like I I feel like sci-fi in and of itself is one of those is one of those genres that it doesn't have to be groundbreaking. And I feel like that's can be that can be true of just about any film ever made, any any comic book, any album. Some like some of my favorite albums are, they're, they're not groundbreaking. They're just good pieces of music. And I I can turn a critical eye to it if I want, and I can express the things that it were done well and the things that lacked, but at the same time, there do you feel like there's an elitism to the enjoyment of sci-fi that kind of takes away from what it could be culturally? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Because... Oh, absolutely. Especially being a... A girl sci-fi fan growing up kind of before it was okay to be publicly uh, a sci-fi fan. Well, I mean, both of us grew up whenever whenever we were in school, whenever we were in high school, middle school, whatever. It was still in the era pre, like the pre-Marvel, pre pre-Marvel, yeah. pre-nerd renaissance. Actually, pre-mainstream uh, internet. As well, yeah. because I, while I was, I've been on the internet since fourth grade, but that is also kind of a fluke thing because my dad, well, we needed it for work and we had yeah, it earlier the, than the, a lot of that people. That was the same thing with me, but even whenever we were in high school, we were 
right on the cusp of the idea of web web 2.0 right um like i myspace was not prevalent for me whenever i was in high school i i didn't know um, about myspace until uh grad school even like as far as social media in in my high school years like zanga and live journal were kind of a thing i had live journal in high school it's since been deleted my critics so sorry <laughs> so uh, but i mean you you speak to the idea of there was always this stigma against liking science fiction and nerdy stuff. And I feel, do you feel like that maybe drives the decisions for the people who are making sci-fi nowadays? No, but I think that a lot of fans use it as an excuse now to be the bullies that they, that they were the targets of in high school. And I feel like I that's, that that's, that's, that's true. And it's also very, very sad. I think that rather than building empathy, for other people, I think they've they've turned it around and just said, oh, you know what, now we've got the power, so we're going to abuse it because that happened to us, which is the exact opposite of what you would kind of hope for. You would hope that, that being bullied for what you are and what you enjoy would make you more empathic toward people, but it's been the opposite. And I don't know what drives that sort of change in the status quo for the bullies versus the bullied and it that could be a show in and of itself probably not on this platform but somewhere um i just look at i try to look at the way that the mainstream audiences look at different genres and it's funny because we've grown to accept like the super who the superhero genre or at least the marvel movie is now greatly and readily accepted by the mainstream public see i feel like marvel movies and Star Wars movies are kind of the only ones where you're allowed to have fun and then everything else it's kind of hand waved. Yeah. And I just I just wonder why there why that level uh, that circle, that little circle of nerdiness is okay and yet people will be mocked for enjoying other types of, or trying to go out of their way to embrace other types of sci-fi or other types of things that are typically in that nerdy sphere. And I, th I, th I wonder if it just has to, has to do with the long running stigma of science fiction fans and the way that they conduct themselves. And, you know, I've talked at length about how comic book fans ruin comics for a lot of people. And I feel like science fiction is, kind of the same way um try being an anime fan i'm not i don't want to i i really don't want to um because science fiction fans take themselves i i and this is a generalization and maybe if you don't feel that you are this person then it doesn't apply to you but if it does then you need to reevaluate your life these are the type of the science fiction peep fans there are the types like me who just love the genre and are so excited by what it offers as, you know, being this conduit for creative expression. And then there are those who get upset when things fall outside of the box. And they're the types of people who rage and throw, throw fits on the internet and make death threats whenever people of color or people who are not traditionally white male creators get nominated for Hugo Awards. So it, it's one of those things where I, I wish that I wish that we could fix sci-fi because there's so much good sci-fi out there right now that doesn't fall into any like any rigid box. 
and I feel like it's important for people to be able to access it and enjoy it and spread and heartily recommend those things without fear of reprisal. We need to plop them all down in front of USS Callister and yeah. say, this is what happens if you're a man, baby. Okay, I'm going to go home and watch that episode. <laughs> All right, so we are pretty much out of time. Um, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I feel like this has been a good, a good discussion and cathartic for me in a lot of ways. Um, so thank you for uh, listening to us ramble. If you uh, want to know anything more about us, your gracious hosts, you can always find us on social media. My Twitter is at AmIWriterWrong. Uh, that is also my Instagram as well, but you can find the Instagram of the show on at pop and schlock live and the show twitter is at pop schlock pod so feel free to drop us a line and say anything that you would like to say as long as it is not hurtful or indecent in any way shape or form well then that means i can't ever talk to you yeah exactly stay off my feed okay no promises. And where can we find you, Meredith? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Meredith Nudo, M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-N-U-D-O. And you can find me on my public-facing Facebook page, Hardcore Nudo T, H-A-R-D-C-O-R-E-N-U-D-O-T-Y. And prior to next week, we would like to plug uh, the hashtag on Twitter, Black Panther Challenge. It is raising money in local areas to take children from uh, underprivileged areas to go see Black Panther which I think is amazing. Uh, as far as I know, there's not one going on in Houston, but there is one in Austin. And I think the biggest one right now is in Flint, Michigan. So anything extra that they get from that, they're also going to buy backpacks and school supplies for the kids as well. And that's awesome. Everybody should get involved with that. I know we have some listeners outside of the Houston area. Thank you to everyone yes. for listening. Uh, this week also Ooh. is the Real Abilities Film Festival. It started February 12th and it runs until the 22nd. So look for that as well. Awesome. Thank you for listening. We will see you guys next week. Have a good one. Thank you.